You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. From uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 5, uh, verses 17 through verse 20. And the key verse is up here on the screen, uh, which is verse 19. Can we all read this verse together? Okay, let's go. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray one minute. Heavenly Father, thank you, Jesus, for this time to hear your words, Lord. May you open up our hearts this morning, uh, for our hearts are the wellspring of life. Uh, Lord, may you uh, speak to us personally. I ask for your Holy Spirit to fill this room and my heart as I preach your words, Lord. Please be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so today's message is composed of two parts. Part one is the fulfillment of the law of God. And part two, which covers verses 17 and 18. And part two is the righteousness of the law of God, which covers 19 and 20. Okay, and you see the sub-points there uh, under the main points. So I want to give you sort of an orientation of where I'm going, because it's a big, this is a, it's a big uh, a thick here. So, uh, part one, <clears throat> the fulfillment of the law, Matthew chapter 17 and 18. If you want to move to the next slide here. There we go. The, fulfill, the part one is fulfillment of the law. So Matthew's gospel is written uh, in the biblical genre known as a narrative. And a narrative is simply a genre in biblical literature which resembles a story. And so a narrative is simply a story. And Matthew chose to, to write this book, uh, uh, this account of Jesus, in a story form. Uh, but in order for us to understand this story, this narrative here, um, we have to not only understand the genre, which is narrative, of course, but we have to understand the setting, the rising actions, the climax, and of course the ending, which helps us to understand the entire context of the story. But most importantly, we need to understand the events that took place prior uh, to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 1 through 4. As you can see on the screen, Matthew's Gospel begins with the birth of Jesus, chapters 1 and 2, which testifies to five accounts there of prophecy, fulfillment of prophecy. Okay, And uh, Matthew then transitions into the inauguration of Jesus' Gospel of the Kingdom ministry through John the Baptist, chapter 3. And briefly outlines the fulfillment of the scriptures and the fulfillment of righteousness through John the Baptist's ministry. And Matthew then goes on to set the stage for today, uh, leading into the beginning of Jesus' ministry, where we see several scenes in chapter 4. The temptation of Jesus. Jesus begins to preach the calling of the first disciples. Jesus' healing ministry. And now we arrive at the setting of our scene for today. Uh, which begins in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through chapter 5, verse 1. So this is the setting on a mountainside. So these these verses up on the screen set set 
create the setting of the scene today. And as a result of the amazing healing ministry of Jesus, Jesus was becoming famous at this time. And a number of people were following him. So he took to a mountainside. So it's indirectly concluded here that um, Jesus took to a mountainside to escape the crowds. And hence seeing the crowds, if you see it, look at verse 1 there, 5 chapter 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. As his disciples uh, came to him, Jesus began to teach them. And what did he teach them? Well, you guys already studied this, of course. He taught them the Beatitudes. So what is the Beatitude? Now, I know you've already studied these uh, one by one, but I want to give you a quick review here. Um, <laughs> you know, what, what is a Beatitude? A, a Beatitude originates from this text. This is the Latin Vulgate text. And as you can see in the prefix of the word Beatitude, right up there, Beatitude, Beatty. You see the word Beatty. You can see the word repeated, beati, 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 right? Beati popra spiritu quanum ipsurum eregnum calorium. That's Latin, right? <laughs> As you can see, this one matches this one, right? But what's the significance of the word beatitude? Right? What's the significance of it? It attaches this word as tood. What does the suffix tood mean? It actually is referring to a state of being. So... We see the suffix in words like attitude, multitude, gratitude, turpitude. Uh, can you think of any others? <laughs> What's that? Solitude. There you go. So gratitude is a state of being grateful, right? It's a state of being grateful. So what's a beatitude? A beatitude is a state of being blessed. Okay. So we've established what a beatitude is, where it came from. Um, now let's go on to, to the English. <laughs> All right, so you know that there are eight or nine Beatitudes. And since some view the last two Beatitudes as one because of the same concept here, persecuted, persecute, right? Those two words, basically, uh, uh, some believe that the verses 11 and 12, 11 and 12 down here, are just an expansion of verse 9. So anyways, and, and they claim that you know, since it's, since it's repeated, the word blessed is repeated nine times, there are nine. So whether or not there are eight or nine doesn't really matter. The point of the matter is, is they are the Beatitudes. So, um, so the Beatitude declarations, let's move on to the next one. Yes. So the Beatitude declarations can be seen as a conditional statement. Because they're dependent upon the result. They're describing a present state of being. So if you look at uh, the present state of being, these are all blessed. These are all are. These are all in the present tense. State of being, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. These all describe a present state of being. Right? But... There's something really peculiar about it is, is, is here these two verses match, right? And you see here, shall be, shall, shall be, shall, shall see, shall be, right? Shall be, shall. So what does it mean, shall be? It's a future, right? So has it taken place yet? No. But what about uh, verses 3 and uh, 10? 
Has it taken place yet? Yes. So that's the exception to this rule is that these verses right here form what's called an inclusio. This is what, uh, in Hebrew literacy, they used in poetry and prose, or prose um, to be a device uh, to, to describe a thematic statement that's repeated at the beginning and the end of a text. So in the first beatitude, Jesus said, the state of being poor in spirit is a blessing. Why? Why is the state of being poor a blessing? You know, according to Jesus, a man who realizes the spirit of desperation can easily possess the kingdom of heaven because he recognizes the utter depravity of his state of being, poor in spirit. So this man is truly blessed because he recognizes that he's a sinner and according to Jesus, presently has the kingdom of heaven. I'm going somewhere with this, trust me. <laughs> so, beatitudes, so these beatitudes, beatitudes, blessings, they're future conditional statements that result in a future promise that have yet to be obtained and fulfilled. So this statement right here, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, is incomplete. Why is it incomplete? Does this mean that the poor in spirit, sinners, can receive the promise of fulfillment, the kingdom of God, by just being poor in spirit? It's a pretty hard one to think about, right? But what we've established is the point is, is the limitation in the, in the word of God. Right? Yes, the law of God is perfect, but it has a limitation. Now, don't misunderstand this. Really, really, don't misunderstand this. Don't misunderstand this, because this does not discount the biblical inerrancy. It doesn't, it doesn't discount the infallibility of Scripture, because these doctrines merely prove that the Bible is without error in its original context. It is infallible, meaning it can never be wrong. The Bible is always right. So what is the limitation? Although the law of God establishes the standards of righteousness, they are incomplete, Without Jesus Christ. <clears throat> because the law of God is not the element that saves you. It is Jesus Christ who saves you. The law of God cannot save you, but it can lead you to the Savior. The law of God cannot heal you, but it can lead you to the healer. The law of God cannot comfort you, but it can lead you to the comforter, the Holy Spirit. Because the law of God cannot save us, God sent Jesus Christ to save us. So these righteous requirements might be fulfilled in us. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 say, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, the limitation of the law. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. The law of God cannot die for your sin. That's a limitation, right? But only the fulfillment, Jesus Christ can die for your sin and my sin. And he did die for our sins according to these scriptures. First, 
Jesus came to fulfill the law of God, not to abolish it. Jesus came to fulfill the the law of God, not to destroy it. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So as you know, the New Testament was written in Greek. So I have up on the screen here the Greek in several English translations. You have the ESV, the KGV, the NASV, the NIV, the NLT, the BNT. These are all basically scriptures. They're translations, except for the, with the exception of the last one, which is the scriptures, right? <clears throat> so uh, when I prepare for a sermon, I generally compare five versions of these texts so I can really grasp what the author is trying to say. If you were at Pepperdine, you probably would have heard about the, uh, the, the workshop that the translations fall along a, a specific uh, spectrum, as you can see here on the screen, right? The formal equivalents are like a word-for-word translation, right? NASV, KGV, ESV, that's, that's a word-for-word translation. Functional is just getting the idea of what the author is trying to say. Um, and then you have the mediating versions, which are in between, Um, So, since we're reading a translation of the scripture, we are really already at a disadvantage because we can't really understand what the author really originally intended to say unless we understand the culture and the language. Uh, So, I tend to shy away from the the functional equivalent because it's really easy to misunderstand uh, the the intent of what the author is trying to say. Let me give you an example. Um, be on the next one. There you go. So this is a phrasing diagram. Whoa, Greek. <laughs> so on, on the left-hand side, you'll see this is a exegesis here. So what you do is you separate all the parts of speech, right? There's eight parts of speech. So you have a, a particles here. You have your conjunctions. You have verbs. You have prepositions. You have uh, adjectives and adverbs. These are nouns. Right here you have pronouns, and that actually should be brown because that's a conjunction. I messed up on that one. But anyways, that, that's a conjunction. <laughs> um, so the point here is I want you to look at these two words here, ilion katalusai, ilion katalusai. So this is the NRV, the Neil Renzi version. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> um, I actually translated this myself. Um, so... What you do is you take the words and you just look them up in the, in the lexicon, in a dictionary, and determine what they mean, right? So this word, katalusai, is repeated in Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, verse uh, 61, where Jesus refers to, him, to, to, the, to himself as, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in, in, in three days. So it's synonymous. That's the reason why I chose the word destroy, is because it's an associated with a destruction or demolishing of a building. It means to completely obliterate. So, <clears throat> this word also, nomosete, on the top here, nomosete, it means think, but it also means you've already made up your mind. So, basically he's saying, do not assume that I've come to destroy the law of the prophets. I've not come to destroy, uh, but to fulfill. Uh, So the point here is what I'm trying to make is, if you can go back to the previous slide, that there's a unanimous decision on the word abolish. The only one that takes the word here is destroy, is the KJV. Now, it doesn't really, that doesn't really do justice, but why am I showing you this? I'm showing you this so that you can 
actually expand your knowledge. Look up these words. Test the scriptures. Go through them. Read them. And uh, you will find that they are infallible. You will find that they are inerrant in the original context. Uh, So let's move on to... uh, uh, Here we go, yes. So how did Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? According to Matthew's gospel, Jesus fulfills a number of prophecies in in the Bible. Um, The... uh, And if you read Matthew's gospel, you'll find a a thematic progression, Uh, not only through the book of Matthew, but just through the first four chapters, as you can see, Jesus fulfills numbers of prophecies. And you'll see the common speech in this book is, um, uh, for this is what was written, uh, for, for uh, for this what, excuse me, for this is what the prophet has written, or this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. So, Basically, Matthew's gospel aligns itself with uh, Old Testament prophecy uh, from the law and prophets to prove that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Um, So as we look back at our narrative storyline, we can see the genealogy of Jesus, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, which refers to Jesus uh, in three ways. So if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, you can follow along and you can trace out these fulfillments. Trace them out. Study the word of God. Get into it. Okay, <clears throat> so <clears throat> Matthew 1.1 1, 1 refers to Jesus in the first verse as how many, how many uh, uh, personas? The Messiah, the son of David, the son of Ab- Abraham, right? So these conclusions establish uh, Jesus as he's a descendant of Abraham. He's a son of, a- uh, son of David. Um, and if you've... Uh, these conclusions establish that uh, he possesses both the covenantal blessing and the royal lineage of kingship spoken of in the law and the prophets, but also referred to as the promised Messiah. Okay, so um, moving right along. There are seven more prophecy fulfillments in the first four chapters of Matthew's, Matthew's gospel. So let's go through them one by one. Look at here, Matthew, oh, uh, yeah, Matthew 1, 1, uh, Matthew 1, 22, 23, Matthew 2, Matthew 2, Matthew 2, Matthew 3, Matthew 3, Matthew 4. So you can see just in the first chapters, he's coming to fulfill prophecy, right? So let's go to the first one. Jesus, uh, you can click to the next one, yeah. Jesus fulfills Isaiah's prophecy of his virgin birth. So how do we know that Jesus was uh, born by a virgin? It was, written about, it was written about in the book of Isaiah, uh, the birth of Jesus, 737, 690 B.C., before Jesus was born. Jesus fulfills Micah's prophecy of his birthplace in Bethlehem. Prophecy, Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 6, fulfillment, for so it is written by the prophet, 2, 3 through 6, ESV. The location of Jesus' birth was written in Micah around 737, 690 B.C., before the birth of Jesus took place. Let's go to the next one. Jesus fulfills Hosea's prophecy of his escape to Egypt. Prophecy, Hosea. Fulfillment. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. The, the departure of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus to Egypt to escape the king's edict was spoken of by the prophet Hosea before Joseph, Mary, and Jesus had even thought of escaping to Egypt. Okay, let's go to the next one. Jesus fulfills Jeremiah's prophecy of Herod's edict to kill all boys in Bethlehem who were two years old and under. Jeremiah 31.15, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. You see the same 
words here. The king's edict was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah around 627, 580 B.C., before the edict had even been considered. Let's go to the next one. Jesus fulfills Isaiah's prophecy of John the Baptist preaching. Prophecy, Isaiah 40. For this was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. The confirmation and preaching of John the Baptist's ministry was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah before John the Baptist came preaching. Jesus fulfills righteousness through baptism. Although not a prophecy, Jesus fulfills all righteousness by being baptized by John the Baptist. Although not needed, the act of baptism accomplishes conversion and purification of sins and endorses John's message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus fulfills Isaiah's prophecy at the beginning of his preaching in Galilee. The prophecy was written in Isaiah 9. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The confirmation and preaching of Jesus' ministry started first in Galilee, was spoken of before Jesus came preaching. Wow. (laughs) Those are a lot of prophecies, right? So all of these prophecies... Uh, are fulfilled through the birth, ministry, and preaching of Jesus Christ just in the, just the first four chapters of the Scripture. So as you read through the book of Matthew, if you, if, if you read the book of Matthew, pay particular attention to the repetition of the prophecy fulfillment of these words. And you can't go through them all today because it's sort of redundant. You're probably bored with all of those by now, right? But, um, you know... This, the law is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. All this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. The law is fulfilled through Jesus Christ, and these are carefully accounted for in the scriptures. Second, the law of God will never pass away until all is accomplished. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, the Greek word here for pass away is paralith. This word here, paralith. It comes from the root word paroexome. The word uh, to pass away literally means to pass away in the sense of perishing. It also carries the meaning of an end and or to disappear like it never existed, which we see in some of the English translations The word is used four other times in the Gospels, particularly referring to the passing away of a generation. You see here in verse 20, uh, Luke chapter 21, verse 32. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Um, The most important thing to pay attention is the eos clauses, and or in English is the until clauses. Um, So you can go to the next slide. Um, The until clauses... Uh, are the most important to pay attention to. So you see here, until pass away, until all has come to be. Eos on pantan genotai, eos on perilith o oranon. Which this basically means is, uh, if you go back to the previous one, oh, I'm sorry, the next one after that, uh, that way, yeah. You see this clause, eos on paralith, oh, oh, and this one here. These are the most important to pay attention to because uh, <clears throat> heaven and earth, what Jesus is saying is uh, heaven and earth indirectly are going to pass away. 
Um, and uh, Jesus said, until heaven and earth disappear and until everything is accomplished, the word of God will not disappear. Uh, so these, these, these two clauses have a synonymous relationship because they indicate a time period of when these events will take place. So what Jesus is saying indirectly is that the present heaven and earth are going to pass away. And even though the heaven and the earth pass away, the law of God will remain. Uh, And these two, uh, 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 the law of God will remain uh, until all is accomplished, right? Until all is accomplished. So what did Jesus mean by until all is accomplished? Was Jesus referring to his death and resurrection or was he referring to the complete consummation of the will of God? That one is still in debate. But the main point here is clear. Uh, All has not been accomplished yet since the heaven and earth are still here. Therefore, the law of God remains intact. So we are to continue to preach it. Uh, uh, Matthew chapter 24 verse 35 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The grass withers, the flowers fades, but the word of God will stand forever. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So Jesus came to fulfill the law, and, and the law of God will never pass away until all is accomplished. Part two, the righteousness of the law of God, verses 19 and 20. Third point, the righteousness of the law of God is to be practiced and taught. The the, the righteousness of the law of God is to be practiced and taught. Uh, So let's go ahead and read this key verse again together. Okay, let's go. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, the Greek word here for set aside is luce. And it carries a number of definitions. As you can see from uh, the Greek lexicon here, if you can see here, the Greek lexicon here on the screen, you have three definitions of this word. Luce, right? Um, It's also used in the context of, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loose from a wife? Do not seek a wife. The same word is used there, to unbind, to take away the legal obligation. Um, So that's what Jesus is trying to say. Whoever tries to take away the legal obligation of the law is lesser in the kingdom of heaven. Um, so as we look at our beloved translators, you will notice from the translations, if you go to the next one, uh, that uh, there's a widespread variation in the word translation for the word luso, relaxes, shall break, annuls, sets aside. Here's the word here, Lewis says. So we're confused, right? Uh, it obscures Jesus' thought, but what... what Jesus was trying to make, um, the point Jesus was trying to make is very clear. It's very simple. Let's take a look at the Greek. 
tape, the, the, the verses, are the, the, the verbs are the most telling in this one, okay? Luso, didacte, plethsetai, poises, didacte, plethsetai. These two words are the same, right? If you look here in English, shall be called, shall be called. These two words, didacte, didacte, teach, they're the same here. Poises, does. Luso, lucen. Whoever, if then, shall loosen these commands, the lesser, and teaches thus the man, the lesser shall be called in the kingdom of heaven. You can see this in te basile ton oropon. These two are the same. What's my point here? You either do them and teach them, or you don't do them and teach them. <laughs> Do them and teach them or don't do them and teach them determines whether or not you are great in the kingdom of heaven. So you are only great if you practice and teach the word of God. But if you just teach the word of God and you don't do them, what does that make you? That makes us a bunch of hypocrites. A lesser man. You will be in the kingdom of heaven. But you're still in the kingdom of heaven, right? Wrong. Jesus closed that loophole in the next verse. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. <gasps> Why was that such a strict teaching? Is that possible? Jesus came to fulfill the law, not only in the sense of fulfilling the prophecies in the scripture. But in preaching and teaching the righteousness through his ministry, he became the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus, uh, when Jesus taught, he practiced uh, what he taught, and he didn't teach it and not do it himself. He was perfect in practicing and teaching the law of God and set the perfect example of how you and I should consider the law of God. And a great example of that is when Jesus... Uh, fulfills the righteousness when he's baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist is preaching a baptism of repentance. If Jesus does not practice baptism, perhaps he's above the law. He's greater than the law. He doesn't need to be baptized. Even John tried to prevent him, but even though Jesus didn't need the baptism, Jesus was baptized. He says here, let it be so now, for thus is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. On the other hand, there were those who taught the law of God, but did not practice what they taught, and therefore compromised the word of God and lessened the commands of God. One example is in Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. Uh, Matthew chapter 15, 1 through 20. In this example, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they lessened the commands of God for the sake of their own tradition. And how did they do it? But then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For, honor, for God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother will be put to death. 
But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father and mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile him, but what comes out of his mouth, this is what defiles him. Then the disciples came and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted but will be pulled up by the roots, leave them their blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull, Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile the person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. So, how did the Pharisees lessen the commands of God? The tradition of the Pharisee was that each one made a formal vow of dedication of themselves to God under the sport of the temple. Today, this vow can be compared to uh, the Roman Catholic Church vow uh, in, in which Catholic priests make a vow of celibacy which exempts priests from marriage in order to be dedicated to the church. And at the time, the Pharisees considered anyone who breaks this vow of dedication to God and to the temple as violating the tradition and committing a serious sin. It's actually referred to as Corbin, right? Uh, In addition, they were using the, the dedication of their lives to serve God as a means to escape the obligations to care for their own parents in their old age. So while dedication to the church... Uh, of God and the church is honorable, if it violates the word of God, is it still honorable? The defilement is when you teach others to honor your father and mother, and yet you violate that very command when you say to your own mother and father, I don't need to take care of you in your old age because I'm dedicated to serve God. You are justifying your service to God and ignoring your obligation to take care of your parents. The law of God says in Exodus, honor your father and mother. It doesn't say abandon them and be devoted to God. For out of this person's heart comes an evil thought. And then when this evil thought is spoken, this person has just defiled themselves. So evil thoughts, according to scripture, do not originate in your mind. They come from your heart first. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. But the Bible speaks that even though these men practiced all these commands, they were so full of wickedness and greed that they couldn't even honor their own father and mother. So how is it possible to teach the law of God while at the same time dishonor your parents? Uh, It's... So it is possible to teach the law and yet still be full of sin. Um, Jesus completes all righteousness 
Uh, fourth, the standards of righteousness in the law of God. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law had taken away the authority of the law of God by teaching the word of God and not practicing it. Even though they were the religious leaders and scholars and teachers of the law of God, they didn't practice what they taught. So Jesus specifically challenges the disciple. He warns them that this type of uh, uh, righteousness is not really worthy of the kingdom of heaven. That the righteousness of the Pharisees was not true righteousness because they didn't practice what they taught. Jesus practiced what he taught even though he didn't have to. Jesus personalized the term, your righteousness. Right? He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is personalizing the term your righteousness to refer to the righteousness of which these disciples would later be judged for. Since Jesus says you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. Well, then entering the kingdom of heaven should be easy, right? They just lowered, they just lowered the standard for us. All they, had to do, uh, all, they, all they had to do to beat the Pharisees was to actually practice what they taught. So the message is, the, is a warning. This message is sort of a warning to, to, to the leaders of the church of God. Jesus would entrust his disciples with the ministry of teaching the word of God. Matthew's gospel even ends with the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The teaching ministry of Jesus is extremely important because it involves the reputation of the church that those who teach loosely shall be called less. And those who teach with authority shall be called great. The ingredient that sets these two apart is, as we looked in that verse, is both of them taught, right? Didacte. You learned didacte, right? Both of them taught, but one of them did it. One of them practiced what they preached. That's what sets you apart as a Christian to exemplify this type of righteousness. You preach it, but do you do it? Do not nearly listen to these words and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Do what it says. Do you want to do, let's do what it says, right? So it's a kind of a hard message. This is a really hard message. Wow, it's like fulfillment of the law. Your first time preaching, you know, preach the fulfillment of the law of God. But if you move on to the next one, I, I believe the Lord God wants our heart in practicing these commands, not because we must, but because we love God. 
Do we love God? If we love God, right, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God, we obey his commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. So today's teaching is fairly simple. It's fairly simple, right? Don't loosen the word of God by not doing it. Do what it says, right? If you put up on the screen the last verse, today the message is do what it says, right? Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Let's do what it says. And we can change our culture, our church, right? But if we just focus on doing the word of God ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to fulfill these laws. You wrote them for us so that we would not sin so that we could, Lord, have a relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for our sins according to these scriptures, Lord. You have fulfilled complete righteousness. Oh, Lord, let us be Christians like this. Let us be the ones who actually display this righteousness to the world so that we can proclaim Jesus Christ to this world. Raise up these people, Lord. Raise them up, Lord. Raise up these people for your namesake, for your glory. He loves you. Lord, those who are in this room, Lord, I just pray for them at this time, Lord. I just pray. That if your heart is constricted, hurt, come to Jesus. He loves you. Father, thank you so much for your words today, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.